Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967. And we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley Davidsons, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. Tonight's guest is Vic Norman. Now, there aren't too many people in this world like Vic. We've had a couple on the show, um, but they're a rare breed because they've done so much stuff that when you talk to them, you find it hard to believe that they're only one person. It's like they've lived three or four lifetimes already and he's still going. Cars, bikes, planes, he's done it. He's written a book, like I said, The Norman Conquest. He's very proud of having written it himself. 85,000 words, two-finger typing, as he told me. This conversation goes all over the place, but I found him absolutely fascinating, and I hope that you do. I'll tell you the name of his book again. It's called The Norman Conquest, and he is my guest on Speed Shop, Vic Norman. I think everyone gets crossroads in their life, where they carry on doing what they're doing or go left or right or whatever. And um, I think those are the things that determine how your life's going to end up, basically. Well, I've just spent I've just spent ten years playing music on the radio in the morning in Manchester and talking in between the records. But throughout that time, no matter how much of my time was taken up doing that, and how little of my time was taken up as a motoring journalist, I always described myself or thought of myself, or I had to write down what I did, motoring journalist. And as the years yeah. went by, I thought, I've been doing this for, I've been playing records on the radio for, <laughs> for a long time now. But I can't remember ever saying, when somebody said to me, what do you do for a living? I can't remember ever saying DJ, ever. Yeah. And it you know for- what I think it is? I'll tell you what I think it is. I think you're lucky if you've lived a life and you've had passion in your life on, about something. And reading between the lines, I pick up your passion is with motorcars, not necessarily talking on the radio. Well, here's the thing, Vic, um, and I think you'll understand this, but there's another aspect to your life which may complicate matters somewhat. I like cars. I love motorcycles. It's different. Bikes are different. You know that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tried to explain it to somebody, and I said, I've been immersed in... When my upbringing, there was... No, the, the two biggest influences on me were my dad and my mother's father, my grandfather, yeah. John Moore, who was commissioner for highways for Lancashire Police. He was a Jaguar man. He liked Riley's. He had a supercharged Riley, that sort of thing. My dad had been a tonnet boy in the 50s. He was banned from the Berry Pallady dance for fighting. He used to sit outside on his triumph combing his hair. My mother, right. my mother, right. she, my mother I, said, he, my mother said he used to pick his fingernails with a flick knife and I thought he was cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, that, he would have been my sort of bloke. I'd have got on well with him. But um, in neither of those men ever made this massive distinction between a motorbike and a car. It was like, we're interested in machines, and there's, you know, this Norton is the same as that Jaguar in that they are, they are both things that you should aspire to, and, you know, they, they look amazing, and they've got this proud racing history and all that sort of stuff. Whereas I'd, I'd meet 
bikers who didn't who had a real anti-car thing going on and and i'd never felt that i just i just always thought that a chap a proper chap would have cars and motorbikes obviously you know why wouldn't you have both and also in your life and we'll we'll come on to that in a bit i hope airplanes which which you'll try and explain to explain to me um, whether they're like a car or like a bike or whether they're completely different. But I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you this question because this is something that comes up on almost every show that we do. And it's when my guest started riding or driving on the road. And it is always, always, always quite a bit before they were supposed to. Correct. <laughs> so, Correct. When, so when was it with you and what was it? <laughs> I, I... Well, there was a one-off scenario, but I don't count that as driving on the road. The one-off scenario was that my dad, who was a a self-made East End Londoner um, and had an engineering company that he built up himself. He was in the Merchant Navy when he was 13 years old doing um, an engineering apprenticeship. But he he was, like your dad, was definitely a major person in your life. My dad was in my life. And my dad had the passion about anything mechanical. And he actually bought me, uh, terribly spoiled, when I was four years old, a little car from Germany that had an engine. And because my dad was very well known in the local area, etc., etc., when I was five years old, I drove that car on the public highway with permission from the local police, with my dad leading the way in front in his car, in his friend behind, down to the local police um, sports ground, uh, which was an open day, and I drove the car round and round the sports ground, and then I drove it back on the road back home, how, about a mile away. How, that's one of the greatest stories I think I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> it was complete, completely mad. Um, but the answer to your question, I started, I suppose, on the road with a BSA Bantam. Uh, I couldn't wait to get something. And I was about 12 years old. And I used to take the cylinder head, he- cylinder head off every week to try and make it go faster. And I'd drive that. I would ride that on the road all over, locally, all over. <laughs> and then when I started go-karting, um, I wasn't old enough to drive, but I used to drive... We had an old Bedford van. I used to stick my go-kart in that, and I used to drive that to the go-kart meetings when I was 14, 15. So what sort of setup would that have been, Vic? Would it have been like a, vill- a proprietary Villiers engine, which you were... Uh, and would it, would, it be, would it have gears and stuff like that, or would it just be the two-pedal... It wouldn't be a two-pedal job back then, would it? No. I mean, uh, well, first of all, that little car when I was five... That had two speeds and no clutch, so it's a push-start scenario. And my go-kart also was uh, just basically a a 100cc engine, Italian engine, um, which was a one-up from a Villiers. Mm. It would have been a Minarelli or something like that, wouldn't it? It was a thing called a Sieta engine. Right. And then the other one that was good was a Parella engine. Um, And those were the sort of best... 100cc go-kart engines. Uh, yeah, and that's what my go-kart had because I had quite a nice 
quite a nice go-kart. Did you encounter any uh, any future famous names from the world of motorsport in your early days in the go-karts? Well, I did, because when I started go-karting, in those days you weren't allowed to race unless you were 16 years old. Um, because it was all controlled by the Royal Automobile Club. And so I forged, I forged, it's going to sound terrible this, but I don't feel bad about it. I forged my um, birth certificate and sent that that off to the RAC saying that I was 16. (laughs) Vic, you're supposed to lie about your age to join the Army or the Navy, not to go and race (laughs) go-karts. Yeah, but the thing is, right, now, some people, not people who listen to this show, because I would imagine 90% of the audience is middle-aged men like us who did this sort of thing. What we mustn't do, though, is... Say that it was all right in our time, but it's not all right for the kids t- to do it today. We did it, and if they want to do it, I'm not going to be that grumpy old man who turns around and says, I occasionally see young lads on dirt bikes coming out onto the road, and I think, yeah, he's just going down there because that's how you get onto the old railway line and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm yeah. not shaking my walking stick. If I had a walking stick, I'm not shaking my walking stick at him because I'm thinking, that was you 30-odd 30, 30 years ago. So I I agree you know. with you, but don't forget, you know, I'm going back more than thirty odd years. Yeah, um, but I think and- it, I think it shows initiative, Vic, and I think the rest of your life is evidence that even from I hate that phrase at a young age, even in your youth, you were able to show initiative. You didn't break the rules; you bent them. You bent them a lot, but you 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 know that's what you. If you want to get on in the world, you've got to show a bit of initiative. But it comes back. It comes back to that first word I said, and that was passion. I had a passion, and I was desperate to race my go kart at Rye House and places. And were there any other famous drivers there? Well, I tell you who was there when I was racing. Um, they were all older than me, of course. Was a guy called Roy James, who was one of the great train robbers. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't really know that name. <laughs> Roy James, he was the driver in the Great Train Robbery. Wow. And he used, and he was a really nice man, actually. Uh, and he used to race at Rye House when I did. Um, and there were, yeah, there were lots of people like that, really. Um, I was going to, I was then going to go into uh, some speculation about a very famous name for the world of motor racing who is often rumoured to have been connected with the Great Train Robbery. But I've decided not to do that, and I think we both know why. <laughs> yeah, sure. <Go> on. <laughs> so, what people will say, um, and with some, you know, with lots of evidence to back it up, is that the great flowering of British motor racing talent, whether it be in the construction of cars or in the driving and racing of cars, came about from things like the 750 uh, club uh, rather than karting. I think a lot of the, a lot of the continental, st- continental, what an old fashioned word. Mind you, we're both cracking on a bit. So why yeah, not? Yeah. Um, you know, Italian drivers, Spanish drivers, yes, French coming up through karting. Whereas yeah. in the UK, it would be more what we would call club racing. And yet, I agree. And yet, you, I agree. oh, right. Well, you're, but you're talking about an apprenticeship in carts. Yeah, I am. And I'll tell you why that came about. It's another quite interesting story. I'll make it short. No, there's no a need friend, to. We've, we've a got friend time. Of mine, dad, was a guy called Alf Dean. And he was known as Man Mountain Dean. 
And he played all the baddie parts in those lovely, very early 50s films. And he was a wrestler. He was a wrestler, one of those early wrestlers. Yeah. And Man Mountain Dean, um, bear in mind I was a kid, but he he opened the first go-kart track at Tilbury. And my dad was friendly with him and took me up to Tilbury and there was a go-kart. And he said, drive that around, boy. And that's what got me really hooked, I think. Um, but then because Rye House was uh, the sort of number one track, really, in, in, the, in that period and very near, quite near where I lived, um, I did nearly all my racing at Rye House other than the when I used to go away for other, other races with other clubs. Um, but I'm, that's how probably I, yeah. I, first of all, got into into go-karting through Big Alf, Man Mountain Dean, who was the most lovely man. I I met him a few times. Hey, I'll tell so you, strong. I'll tell you, I, I'll tell you who I met. I met Lenny McLean, the governor. Oh, Have yes. Have you yeah, heard yeah. of that guy? And I'll tell you, I met him. We were, you can time, right, we're at nearly 15 minutes now, the first mention of Top Gear. A lot of people rib me about this. They go, you always mention Top Gear. And I say, well, you know, I was there for 11 years, so you know, quite a few things happened, and, and some of the stories are interesting, I hope. That's the only reason I mention it, you know. So yeah. we were filming in London with this company who specialised... I'm trying to... How should we phrase this? They provided customised cars for the gentlemen who operate on the fringes of the legitimate economy. Shall we just say that? Yeah, okay. okay <laughs> and so, yeah, and the, the strangest thing was, was that if you trace the company back to who was behind it, it was uh, a barrister. <laughs> and basically, he'd realised that there was a market for these flash motors for some of his clients. Wow, <laughs> so, wow. So he was, he was getting these Mercedes and BMWs and putting these crazy German body kits and super expensive wheels because for some reason these gentlemen seemed to have a lot of disposable economy that they needed to get, get rid of and so they were buying these cars. <laughs> so we're filming and all of a sudden um, this car pulls up, this huge Mercedes which has been lowered and has these crazy split rim wheels on it and all this sort of stuff. And the guy that I recognised as Lenny McLean um, gets out of the car and he comes over and he asked a couple of questions and then he came over to me and he said, you filming, boy? <laughs> In exactly that voice. And I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, oh, I'm an actor. I'm making a film with Bruce Willis. Like this. And I went, oh, that must be lovely for you. And at this point, he's about... Six inches from my face, and I'm thinking, this is aye, the aye. most this is the most intimidating human being that I have ever come across. And he said, <laughs> and he said, well, be lucky, son, and got, and got and went and got in that this Mercedes and left. And then about six months later, and I thought, is he really in a film with Bruce Willis? And then about six months later, the film, which is called The Fifth Element, I don't, I don't know if you ever saw it, the film came out and Lenny McLean was in the film. So, yeah, yeah, he'd been, he'd been making, making a <laughs> yeah, film, well, making a film with, with Bruce Willis. But it's funny because I, I wanted to ask you about this because I noticed the other day that, um, uh, what was he called? He was one of the stalwarts of the sort of trad jazz scene. And he was also a racer. And I thought... Um, Les Leston or one of that lot, or, no. the, the, or the guy who had the big band, Barber. Yeah, yeah that's him, Barber. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I, was, I said to somebody, well, you know that Billy Cotton 
race cars. And he said, yeah. what, like the band leader? And I said, yeah, yeah. He, was, he, he had quite a, quite a decent racing career. And, and it was funny because there were all sorts, back then, there were all sorts of characters who, who got involved in motorsport but were also involved in some sort of show business. Definitely. I mean, um, one of them had, I can't remember which one. They, they Chris Barber. A, a, Chris they, Barber, yeah, that was it, raced, wasn't it? Yeah. One of them raced an elite, a little Lotus elite. I think that and was Chris the, Barber, yeah. yeah. And the number plate was Daddy-O. That's it, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I remember that. We got a bit sidetracked, and it, I think in a nice way, but I think it was because what I wanted to to find out from you was if it was the case because I've been I've been uh, making a documentary about Chevron, who I'm, I'm, yeah. I, of course you'd be aware of, because they're the race cars that come from Bolton, which is just literally down the road from my hometown of Bury in Lancashire, and it was such an unlikely story of how Derek Bennett made those cars in an old textile mill in Bolton, when virtually the whole of of UK motorsport, the construction at least of the race cars, was concentrated in the southeast of England. And yet yeah. in Bolton was this guy who was making these cars which were durable, n- not maybe as fast as everything else, but they held together. They won a lot of races. Yeah. Um, and what I found out was how localised motorsport was. Because back then there were these championships that were kind of, there was like, there wasn't just a northern one, there was a Lancashire one and a Yorkshire one. And they were hugely contested. And people that came out of these very local championships, some of them went on to greatness, having emerged from from a series that was concentrated around sort of two or three tracks. You know, yeah, like sort yeah. of up in the northwest, it'd be like Aintree, Alton Park and... Trying to think of another one up here in the northwest, but you know, there'd be all the meetings would be at two or three circuits for the whole season, and it yeah. was it was because back then a lot of people would drive to the circuit, race the car that they arrived in, and drive home, and then have to be at work on Monday mornings. So they couldn't, you know, there couldn't be a round. If you lived in Bolton, there couldn't be a round of your championship that happened at Lydon Hill or Cadwell Park because. There was no way you'd get there and back in a day and race, so it had no. to be. It had to be just a. And, and was it like that for you? Was it? Were your? Were you very localized in terms of what you? It's a long question. This I do apologize, but <laughs> I'm getting there in the end. Was it? Was it very localized, or were you traveling the country to race? Um, we're talking about my go kart racing, so it was very localized uh, because, as I told you, I used to drive the van. And I didn't want to drive the van. I'd have been, I was always very nervous about driving the van on the road and being caught. Um, but if I, if I then had to do a long distance race, uh, sorry, a, a race that was a long way away, which we sometimes did. We sometimes went down to Bristol and we went up to Long Newton and various places. Um, then uh, someone who worked for my uh, mum who was a sort of like a odd job type guy who helped me with a lot of stuff, he would drive the van and he'd help me at the racetrack. Because you needed someone with you because you needed a push start on all these. Mm. They did a push start, then a flying lap all in formation. Then the, dra- the flag was dropped and off you went. So um, it was principally locally at my one track, my home track. But then when I went further afield... But we never stayed overnight. I mean, we were never going to stay in a hotel or anything. It was just there and back. 
Yeah, you see the early days. I mean, like you, um, well, I don't like you. I know motorcycles are a passion, and and particularly for me, the era of riders like Phil Reed and Giacomo Agostini, and, and of course the the greatest of all time, in my opinion, Mike Hailwood. And yeah, you, I agree. You, and you, well, great, <laughs> good. <laughs> you see pictures of Mike, um, even when he was. Even when he was probably the best known motorcycle racer in Britain, which at the time Britain still dominated motorcycle sales around the world, you know that famous advert "One in Four is a BSA," and yeah, I, yeah. I had to say to somebody, they said, "What one in four of the bikes sold in the UK was a BSA? That's remarkable." I said, "No, no, no. One in four of the bikes sold in the world was a BSA." Yeah, yeah. That's like, and yeah. they just can't believe it. I say, "It's true." We. For a long time, Britain completely dominated the trade, worldwide trade in motorcycles. Sadly, no more, but, you know, things change, times move along. But even back then, you see pictures of Mike, and he got a little caravan. He got a little... <laughs> he's like there, works Honda or MV Augusta or whatever it is. Behind it is car, which, you know, he had some amazing cars, and he saw Grief or a, a Citroen SM or something like that. But with a tow bar, because... <laughs> There was a little caravan, like a well, single yeah, axle, I mean, the, you know, that sort of thing. Well, also, Sterling Moss was the same. I mean, Sterling um, Sterling was pretty careful with his money. I think we all know and that. He, he had a little, <laughs> little caravan uh, that basically he lo- used to tow behind his works XK120 to European Grand Prix. <laughs> because he didn't want to pay bills in the hotel and be ripped off, you know. Well, the hotels, there were... Racetracks weren't where there were hotels, were there? You know, you'd sort of, unless it was like Reims or somewhere like that, where it, yeah, yeah. it's just yeah. there on the outskirts of the town. They tended to be old airfields and in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, a lot of people would realise that if you didn't have to, I mean, I've heard stories about the people who did stay in hotels and then on race day couldn't get into the circuit because there's yeah, a, there you you know, a yeah. huge queue and it's like we have to postpone the race because people can't get in. It's kind of, it's going to have to be later. So when and did also you... it was a pressure thing. You know, if you were at the circuit and you had your car there, yeah. uh, you could diddle around with it. You weren't worried about being late for scrutineering in the morning. Everything just happened. And I think it took a lot of the worry and stress out of it. And I think there's something else. I, I don't, don't know what you think. I'd be interested to know. I don't think there was the same amount of ego with the no. drivers and the riders because I think even somebody like, let's use him as, as an example, Mike Hellwood, or let's use another example of another all-time great and, and possibly the greatest, I think you may agree with me, Jim Clark. Yeah. Um, you know, in many ways, the four-wheel equivalent of Mike Hellwood. Yeah. The boss was always the boss, and the boss was always bigger than you. You know, Jim Clark would have been under no illusion that Colin Chapman was very much in charge and very much the boss, and, and you know, oh, yeah. he did his job. Oh, yeah. And Mike sure. Hailwood, you know, Mike Hailwood dealt with two of the most, the strongest characters that have ever emerged from motorsport, Count Augusta and Sushihiro Honda. You know, legendarily tough men who were incredibly demanding of the people that they employed. Uh, and it, it was back then, they were, the, they were very much in charge, whereas it seems to me these days, you look at somebody particularly like Lewis Hamilton, and it, it, a lot of the time it seems to me like he thinks that he's bigger than the team. Well, and I think, uh, it, I think he it, is, it, if we're honest. It, well, it's all money, isn't it? I mean, 
those days were different. I'm totally with you on that. I tell you a funny little thing. You mentioned, um, you mentioned what's his name, uh, Agostini and, and Phil Reed, uh, and I know Phil quite well. But a friend of mine uh, who's very into old cars was organising um, out in America, out on the West Coast, an event for BMW, and it was all involved with one of these big concours like Pebble Beach or something. And BMW delivered um, their brand new fastest road bike. I'm not into modern road bikes, but whatever it was, was the best bit of kit. And they delivered, they did a load of these for people to use on the event, and including Agostini and Phil Reed. And the friend of mine was due to lead the group, basically, from one event to the other. Um, and he's He's a fast rider, this friend of mine. He doesn't hang about. And he was on this sweepy road, and he was leading the group. And he was giving it some, you know. And he looked in the mirror, he flashed in the mirror, and he saw these two headlights, and they were catching him. He thought, Christ, is that? They're really going. And he really then tried to twist the grip and go faster. Anyway, a few minutes later, on a sharp, on a, on a long floating right-hand bend, the sudden nyong, nyong, and it's Agostinian Reed. And, <laughs> and they went past him like he was not moving. And shall I tell you something else? They were wearing jeans, normal leather jacket, almost like trainers. And they were, you know, it's just a different league. And I think that's what people don't realize. Those, those early, and, and it must be the same today with MotoGP, I guess. Um, but they were very, very special riders and that's why i love motorcycling because with the car stuff i mean it proves it in the modern formula one if you've got the quickest car mercedes and you get someone who's never raced it before who's all those young guys are great but they're as quick as hamilton or very nearly as quick where you ride some of the bikes at niagara's working and it's all down to rider rather than the machine and that's why I think those early days were special. And you came up with very special people like Helwood and Reed and Agostini. I've got to tell you an Agostini anecdote. I'm, um, I was in the pub in Salford, and uh, the phone rang, and it was a friend uh, who hadn't seen for a while, who I know from kind of the four-wheel um, supercar-type world. And um, he's not a motorcyclist by any stretch of the imagination. And he, he was whispering, and he said to me, Steve, Steve, I'm at this dinner, and this guy sat next to me, and he's some sort of motorcycle guy. But I don't know who he is, and he's talking to me. It's getting a bit embarrassing. So I said, right, okay. Is he British? He said, no, no, he's foreign type. Like this. <laughs> sorry, sorry, foreign type. So he's a, he's a lovely guy, this guy. I know he you know, does a lot of work for charity, etc. He's into, uh, lovely guy. It's foreign type. So I said, right, okay, let's narrow it down. How old is he? So it's hard to tell. He's very well preserved. So my antenna started switching. I said, right, before you go any further, is he ridiculously, stupidly handsome, like better looking than a movie star? And he went, yeah, yeah. I went, it's Giacomo Agostini. He yeah. said, <laughs> yeah. He said, how oh, can you be sure? I said, if it's if the first thing that struck you about him is that he's ridiculously good looking, even though he's yeah. well into his seventies. It's definitely Jack and Agostini. And he called me back. He texted me and he said, yeah, it's him. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. yeah. I was at Brooklands and 
And um, they asked me to do this demo lap round that Mercedes-Benz World that's next door in this, uh, yeah. in this Lamborghini thing, Huracan, I think it's called. And they said, yeah, um, Ago's going to have a go in it. He was there, obviously. He said, and, um, uh, and then you can, you, you can go out in it. I went, right, okay, yeah, cool, whatever. So Ago goes out in it, he gets out, and I get into the seat that he'd just been in. Because he, he did a bit of car racing, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. I yeah, he that. did. I remember watching something on YouTube with him, and John Satiz was there, and Ago was in some sort of Can-Am car or something like that. And he looked yeah, very yeah. familiar with it. And I thought, oh, I didn't realise he'd had a bit of a four-wheel career. Anyway, I go gets out of the car. And um, I go out and do a few laps, come back. And he's, 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 my missus is stood there. And he's got his hand on the wall. And he's sort of, the body language is like, and he's, he's about, again, he's about six inches away from him. And I'm like, bloody Italians, you can't leave him alone for two minutes. It's like, <laughs> you know, and she's like, she's, she's, I said to her, "Was he? Were you flirted with Jack Agostini?" She went, "Of course I was." You know, <laughs> do, you, do you blame me? And I was like, "I was like, mm, well, not really. No, he's. I suppose he is. He is a Jack Agostini, and b ridiculously handsome, even though he's as old as my dad. It's like, you know, and, he, but, and he's Italian. <laughs> yeah, and well, was he? I think. Um, oh, he might not have been. No, he might have been. Well, um, I think. I think like um, Andretti, like Mario Andretti, the place that he was born in is no longer part of Italy. Okay. But, but I, I suppose um, it, that doesn't matter, doesn't it? If it was Italy when you were there, when you were born, <laughs> you, were born Italy, you know, you can't have somebody... I mean, you know, we're, I am a Lancastrian, a proud son of Lancashire, the Red Rose County. But at some point in my, um, in my childhood... The government decided we weren't in Lancashire anymore. We were in Greater Manchester. And I remember my grandfather, the guy who I've mentioned, he was just... He, I can't tell you how angry he was. Okay. He, it was almost like we had to... Rest- he, he, had, he still had a service revolve. A, a lot of men did back in the day. They said, oh, you're not allowed to hold a gun. But there were thousands, tens of thousands of just hung over from the war. Lugers yeah, no, and stuff kept, like that. They kept them as souvenirs. Yeah. He still yeah. had it. He still had it in his desk. And when... My boys used to come round to my house. I used to show it them and charge them fifty pence to have a look at it, a pound to touch it. But it yeah, was, okay. it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't allowed to come out of the drawer. He was that angry. I think if he could have found out who who taken Berry out of Lancashire, he would have shot them. With it. He, <laughs> he was that angry yeah. about it. Good so, but so when did you um, when did you make the change from carts into what we think of as sort of you know cars? Yeah. Um. Well, a, a, I have an older brother who's a half-brother, and um, where we used to live, uh, he was he was sort of friendly with a guy called Chris Craft. And ah, Chris, yeah. Chris was a very well-known saloon car racer driver, um, and he worked for Ford Motor Company in the, in the competition department, and he used to get all bits out the back door and build his own car. So <laughs> I was friendly with his younger brother, and... I suppose that's when, as soon as I was 17 and could legally drive on the road, or before, because I had a three-wheeler when I was 16, um, basically I used to go pretty well to Brands Hatch because most of the racing he would do would be at Brands. And I'd go and watch him race at Brands. You know, I'd go to virtually every meeting um, and watch the car racing. And I suppose then I also probably got too big I got too big for go-karting and um, 
And I didn't really have the funds to carry on. It got bloody expensive if you wanted to win. Was it tyres, really, that was the expense in karting? No, it was it was really just before the tar stuff came oh, in. I thought it was, was I thought it was going to be really clever then. And go, oh, was it tires? And you go, yes, Steve, it was the tires. No, it was because I what my experience of karting was that was that it was just you know this would have been a, a bit later, and it was the one thing that they say is we need qualifying tires, we need pra- we need practice tires, we need one set of, two sets of race tires. We need, it was like oh crikey, it's, how much? No, these we things? only had we only had wets and and six yeah um we only had two choice of tires but it just got it just got more and more expensive really where you know engines needed to be rebuilt after every other race and it all became it all became too technical actually like formula one is now in my opinion do you think that do you think that always happens that's inevitable with any kind of racing well i'll tell you what it isn't I always do every year. You know, I'm very, I, I love the really old motorcycles. So um, I do the London to Brighton run every year with friends. And mm. those, all those bikes, which are 100 years old, they have to be pre 1915. Mm. They're not modified at all. They're as they were. And all us old farts are riding them and getting as much fun as we can have. And why I like those bikes is they're tricky. They're tricky to ride. You know, you've either got one gear or no gears. You've got an advance and retard. You've got to dick around with the fuel. You've got to muck about with the air. And it's stuff. It's a bit like having a steam engine. Stuff <laughs> to keep it going. You're diddling around the whole time. When you come to a hill, downhill, you're looking a long way ahead because you know you've got crappy brakes. One brake in most cases. And to me, the challenge and the love is that it's difficult. That's what I love about it. Where you get on a modern bike and it's just darling speed, isn't it? I mean, I do have a bike I use on the road, a modern bike. Um, but you just, you know, you push the button, it starts, and you just turn the grip and you go as fast as you want to go. I, I mean, did it I did it a few years back on a matchless thousand out of the National Motor Museum. Oh, how and, lovely. And, and Doug, the chap down there, oh, yeah, absolutely. But Doug, the chap down there said, hey, Steve, this is the, he said to me, this was it. Yeah, he sold it me on the phone. He said, it's the super bike of the pre-Great War era. And I said, how fast is it? He said, on a board track, running on methanol, 90. I said, 90 miles an hour? He said, no. I know, he said, I know, he I said, know. He said, no, it'll, it'll only do about 70 on pump gas. And I was like, well, he said something else, but I'm not saying what Doug said didn't say pump gas, but let's say that. And um, I've told this story a few times on the show, so keep it short because you might like it. Um, the one thing that he said to me was, you must remember to pump the oil, Steve, total loss, oh, yeah, lu- yeah, total, yeah. total loss lubrication. He said the biggest problem we have with people who are used to modern bikes, i.e. me and everybody else who borrowed bikes from them, they forget to pump the oil. You must yeah. remember to pump the oil, Steve, or else you'll wreck the engine. I said, yeah, right, yeah. okay, Doug, no problem. So I get going. And, of course, you'll know this as well because you all have done it yourself. Because we're filming, the people that I'm with, they're all concentrating on the filming. They don't realise that this bike can't just start and stop and start and stop and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, it yeah. want, it wants to get going and then it wants to almost – it feels to me like this bike – and, again, I think you, you'd know this – it wants to feel like it wants to get into a cadence, like a pace – 
that it that it that it's happy with exactly. almost almost like a horse that it wants to get going at a specific speed and then it wants to just keep going and every time they're making me stop and go oh, can you go back up there and do it again steve i'm like you can't just stop and turn around on this thing it's got leather belt drive it's very, all that sort of stuff but i thought every every 10 minutes there was a voice in my head saying don't forget to pump. Don't forget to pump the oil stick. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I've yeah. got this brass plunger, as you'd know, with a brass with a big sort of knurled end on it, and I'm pushing down on it, pump the oil, pump the oil. So of course I make the classic mistake of putting too much pressure in the system and blow a line. Oh, yeah. Blow yeah. a line. And I blow the line. And it sprays me. It sprays me with hot oil like this. So I put my but it, it got its own back on you. Yeah. But I put my goggles up and the director said Big horse flies undone. Because, <laughs> of course, I mean, you know, we can come on to that in just a second. I've got the classic panda face, that the, the sort of World War One fighter race, you know, like Eddie Rickenbacker or the Von Richthofen. And I've got, it's, <laughs> but I'll it's... tell you what, Steve, when you did that event, aren't the people, proper motorcycling people, they're so helpful, they're no one's there to show off, yeah. there's no flashness going on. It's a common bond of well, old machinery and having a great yeah. day out. And people will say to me, they go, oh, uh, I saw that video on uh, YouTube of you from back in the day doing uh, 190 miles an hour on a on a bike. And I said, right, well, this is how long ago that was. The, the, the editor, the guy in charge of Top Gear, decided that the actual speed that was shown, which was just over 208 miles an hour, was too yeah. much. Yeah. And that we would get letters of complaint, and it, we, I was on a, I was on an airfield. It's like, come on! But he said, no, no, that'll frighten the horses if we say to people, look, you can buy a motorbike that does over two hundred miles an hour. I think the speedo was a bit optimistic, but there you go. Um, but they say, what, what is that the fastest you've gone? And I say, well, yeah, kind of. I've been up around that speed a few times. But let me tell you something: doing sixty-five, seventy miles an hour on a 1911 matchless on the A23. Because, of course, the filming meant that we got ridiculously delayed. And I had to say, look, we've got to get to Madeira Drive in Brighton. We've got to get to the finish, so there's going to be nobody to there. qualify, yeah. Yeah, so I said, we've got to get going. So I'd been nursing this bike up until then, and then I realised something. You don't need to nurse those old bikes. They're tough. They're durable. They were built, yeah, yeah. At, built at a time when the roads were in a terrible state, and they are strong, those bikes. And I got on that matchless, and I wound it up on the A23, and I'm going past everything on the road on a 1911 matchless like this. And the, the, one of the best bits was the look on people's faces in cars when I went past them at, like, 65, 70 miles an hour. They were just like, what the hell? It was like they'd seen a ghost. And in a way, they had, really, hadn't they? The ghost, yeah, yeah. Of, mo- the ghost know- of pre-Great War motorcycling. I know, but Steve, listen to you now. It, it comes back to the same word, mate. His passion. That bike has given you such bloody passion. You'll you'll remember that and be telling that story on the day you die. Well, people that listen to this show have probably heard it three or four times already. So there was, and, and again, I said I saw Doug at uh, Goodwood a few years later, and I said to him because what I did when it blew that line, I lost. Um, I lost a bolt that held the line to the flat tank on the flat on the top of the flat tank. Okay. And so I thought there's got to be another nut on this. There's got to be another bolt on this bike. And I had a little sort of multi-tool in my pocket because all bikes you've got, you've got pockets full of tools, haven't you? Duct tape yeah, yeah. and screwdrivers and all that sort of stuff. So I pulled the multi-tool out and I thought, Oh, this one, on, there's two holding the number plate on. 
don't need two. Took one off and it fitted perfectly. The number plate was swinging about a bit, but yeah, so perfect, what? Perfect. And I said to Doug, "Did you ever get a?" Bo-? He said, "The same bolt is still, <laughs> still holding that fuel line down because <laughs> it's like with those with with those very old bikes. Um, I think the same with very old cars. You don't really want to be taking them apart unless you have to." Because every no. every time you loosen and tighten something, the thread gets a little worn. Do you know what I'm saying? A couple of bits of paint flake off the tank, only tiny little oh, bits. Yeah. But no, every time you do it, if you can possibly avoid disassembling, I think a lot of people, I don't think so now. I think things have changed. I, I wonder what you think. But people, maybe 15, 20, 25 years ago, They'd find an old car, they'd find an old bike. The first thing they'd do is take it to pieces, regardless of whether it could have stayed in one piece. Now I think a lot of people have gone, whoa, hold on a minute. As soon as you start taking the thing apart, you lose a lot of the history. Does it run? Yeah. Does it stop? Let's let's just put some new tyres on it. And let's not mess with it too much. I nearly said something else then. Glad I didn't. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I'm with you. I mean, um, the joy of those old things... And I guess it's the same. I've never, I've never really had an experience with steam, but it must be like it with traction engines and things. It must be just wonderful fun. Well, again, do you want to talk about you, you want to talk about speed? I, I had an amazing experience where, through my association at the time with um, General Steve Davis, who was the director of the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester, he now runs a steam engine preservation society. Would you believe? in Sierra Leone, which is quite a job change. But he used to... Mind you, uh, I would imagine that um, the sort of criminality in Manchester, Freetown and Manchester isn't that different. So, no. so no. anyway, um, I got a chance to be uh, taught how to drive a steam engine and to actually be in charge of uh, an engine out on the main line. And, and the, the most incredible thing about that was that I was leaving... The first rail, as I set off with a man who was actually in charge, stood behind me, but me sort of pulling the levers and, you know, with him saying to me, pull that one there and turn that, have a look at, you know, the guy behind me telling me what to do. I set off from the first railway station in the world, Liverpool Road, Manchester, the first station, the first line in the world, Manchester to Liverpool, the first station, Liverpool Road, Manchester. And I'm turning the, letting the steam power move the engine forward and the trucks that were behind us. And I'm thinking, wow, we get up to about a speed, which I think, you know, we're about to leave the track. And I said to him, how fast are we going? And he went, about 35 miles an hour. (laughs) 35 miles an hour. It felt like we were about to leave the track. We were going that fast. Sure. Amazing. Yeah, fantastic. There There was some amazing... Bikes, cars, um, and aeroplanes, of course. You know, because how how did you manage to to coordinate all three and and find not coordinate? But how did you find time for for your enthusiasm and your passion for all three? People tend to specialise in one or perhaps yeah. two, but I've never met anybody who does all three to to the extent that you do. Yeah, but I didn't used to do all three. I mean, it, it it's about because I couldn't afford to, so. It was about doing, having the most fun with a mechanical thing that you could afford to do at the time. So, yeah, go-karting, that's how it all started. And uh, and then it was really 
later on in life, other than that early Bantam stuff, it was later in, on in life when I could afford to save up and buy an old motorcycle that I got into the motorcycles. And, you know, I had to earn a living. So basically, my living has been my aeroplanes. So that's how I've earned my living. So the flying and the air show stuff that I've been doing has been very much how I've earned my living for the last 40 years. Yeah. It's paid my mortgage. Well, the chap that I've mentioned, mentioned him all the time. And, he, you know, you're bound to. He was a big, my grandfather, my mother's father, John Moore. He was born in the last, he was the last of the Victorians. He was born in the last year of Queen Victoria's range at the turn of, uh, of reign at the turn of the century. And he learned to fly at what I believe was Britain's second airport, which was Squires Gate at Blackpool. Right. In the very early days of aviation, but yeah. um, it's never—it's not bit. And then he was quite involved with that in the Second War. Although you know um, it, what he actually did is still none of us really know because yeah. it was—it was one of those things. He, somebody was talking the other day to me about something on the television that's something to do with the SAS, and I said, "I'm so old now. I remember when people who'd been in the SAS wouldn't tell you that they'd been in the SAS." Correct. I mean, yeah. I knew a motorcycle racer who people had said to me, oh, you know, he was in the SAS. And we got quite friendly and we, we did a lot of stuff together and we once we went over to Europe a couple of times. And so on the long journeys over there, you know, towing something, I, I actually got up, up enough courage and said to him, is it true you were in the SAS? And he just looked straight ahead. Then he looked at me for a couple of seconds and looked back. And the look on his face said, never ask me that question again. And even if I was, I would never tell you. If you want to stay friends with me, you know, and I'm yeah, very, yeah. I very much wanted to stay friends with me. So guess what? Never mentioned it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I understand that. But I mean, on, on my deal thing. So, I mean, you know, I went to Chelsea College of Aeronautical Engineering in the King's Row, which was a good place to be in the 60s. How fant fantastic. Stuff. That must have and, been great. And... Um, and basically, yeah, I started earning a living with old racing cars. So I started doing old racing cars up for people. And then I had a small company with three or four people working for me. And we it got sort of bigger and bigger. And I then I then became, can you believe, when, when you couldn't even give Ferraris away, I became the Ferrari dealer for Gloucestershire, Somerset and Avon, Gloucestershire, Somerset and Avon. But you couldn't sell a Ferrari in those days. In the early early 70s, you couldn't give them away. No I'm one so, wanted a Ferrari. I'm so glad that you're saying this. Because I, I, it's been... It was the same with Aston Martins. DB5s. I've got... Crikey, it's mentioned my grandfather. It's the, it's the, it's the John Moore show, this, uh, this one turning into. But I inherited my grandfather's bound copies of Car magazine and all, all that sort of stuff. You can look in the classifieds and it'll say... Aston Martin DB5, a bit tatty but running, £500 ONO. Oh, yeah. There was a time when all of these iconic cars were unloved and unwanted. And people, people now were. can't imagine that that ever happened. But I've said to them, OK, in 1973, a DB5 was a pair of straight-leg drainpipe trousers in a world of flares. Nobody yeah. wanted to wear drain pipes in 1973. Nobody in 1973 wanted a coach-built car 
with a separate chassis and wire wheels and, and leather seats. They wanted something acid green with pop-up headlights and, a, and an orange interior. And, yeah, and, you know, and, then when the, and then when we had the first petrol crisis and all that mining stuff going on, I mean, you could buy you could buy almost a brand new Ferrari uh, Daytona for you know maybe something that had done less than five thousand miles. You could buy one of those cars for the same price as going and buying a new Ford Granada, which was about two and a half grand. <laughs> no one wanted the Ferrari because you know they were drinking a lot of fuel and yeah. It was defunct. It wasn't the thing to have. And you're dead right. I mean, by chance, all these old car things have gone up in value. But, um, yeah, I mean, whether that's going to stay the case. An interesting thing, you know, about I think we're very lucky that with the older motorcycles and cars, we don't have to pay road tax. But I think I think what's going to change, I notice now someone was telling me in China, so they don't want you to have gusts. Uh, uh, guzzling petrol cars polluting the air and they say fine we want you to go and buy a small electric car or a small petrol engine car and you can go and buy your big Ferrari or your Lamborghini and everything that's no problem you can have it but you're going to pay 30,000 a year road tax wow (laughs) yeah so it doesn't stop you doing it but Jesus, it makes you cough, doesn't it? Mm. We we talk about this quite regularly on the show, how lucky we are in certain respects in this country, in that you are almost allowed to ride or drive just about anything on the road. When yeah. you when you when you you know, when you say to people, Oh yeah, you can we had a chap on um, from my hometown from Berry, John. And he's a now he's a fabricator, works in a I think they make um Get powered gates and security stuff and stuff like that. He made, rather like Johnny Cash in the song, he made a car from the offcuts from work. He got a motorbike engine and using bits of steel and aluminium that were offcuts from work that were being thrown in a skip, he built a car, an amazing looking three, very, very um, well designed and beautifully constructed. And I was showing a picture of it to somebody else, um, and, he's, and, he's, and he's American, and he said, I said, look at that. And he said, wow, so it's like a track thing. I said, no, no, it's on the road. It's, uh, it's got, look, it's got a number plate. And he said, you are, ju-. he said, there is, you wouldn't get three blocks before the cops were like, we're going to arrest you and we're going to impound. Whatever this is, we're impounding it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. no, in Britain. And, and, you know, we were talking about um, London to Brighton for bikes, obviously London to Brighton for cars. You see some of the contraptions that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there with tiller steering and, and they've they've got four wheels but only one wheel has a brake on it of any kind <laughs> and people are like you could drive these things and say yeah yeah britain's britain is pretty relaxed we're very very lucky and, we and are. if you talk if you talk about light aircraft you can get in a light aircraft and other than pacific zones around heathrow airport and places you can fly anywhere you like you know, you can get in an aeroplane down in in Essex and you can fly up to Scotland and you can do it by avoiding one or two zones without talking to anyone. I should avoid talking about what me and my friend did in his Stearman trainer. <laughs> yeah, you better. I, I, I'll know a bit about that, I'm sure. Well, he said to me, um, he hired me to ride a motorbike in a, com- a TV commercial. 
that required wasn't quite stunt riding, but it was sort of, I suppose, precision riding. Yeah. And, and it was one of those things where I had to really trust the guy who was driving the truck that was pulling the camera trailer because it was quite a sophisticated rig that was filming this commercial. Yeah. And so it just required me to maintain a very specific speed. Right. So, so it wasn't like I had to double for Tom Cruise and like jump off one large building onto another one or anything like that. I just yeah. had to ride at a specific speed and not look at the camera, which was inches away from me on the, and at one point I touched the camera, but I had to not touch the brakes and I had to ride at this speed and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, it was, you know, so it was no big deal really. Like I'd known these guys and worked with them loads of times. And all I did was look him in the eye and said, if a cat or a dog runs out, or even a person steps out, you're not going to stop, are you? He said, I ain't stopping for anything, Steve. Went, right, okay, that's agreed. So <laughs> we do we yeah. do the thing. Yeah. And yeah. Um, he, he said to me, and I, all, I'm not going to mention anything else that went on, he said to me, you can ride a motorcycle, you can fly a steerman. And I turned up on a motorbike, he went, right, okay. <laughs> what an amazing thing to get up it. I mean, I totally get what you must get from flying planes of that era and the steerman was a was it a world war ii trainer or was it yeah, a pre was it, it a pre-war plane that they that they then employed i think he told me that they put a bigger engine in it and it made it difficult to fly because it made it nose heavy and so it was uh, e- it was yeah, e- not- it was easier to assess whether someone might make no, a I'll decent you, pilot I'll tell you what happened exactly so it got the contract for a primary trainer in america like our tiger morph did over here just before the Second World War, okay? And they came out, and they made 8,500 of them, and they had a, normally a 220-horsepower, seven-cylinder Continental engine, about eight litres. Um, very nice little aeroplane, very well-balanced, and that was a trainer. What happened then after the war, like over here with all our Spitfires and everything, they were all scrapped because there was no need for them, except... Some of the ones then were bought by the guys because crop dusting was starting and they put a bigger engine on the front and a big great hopper where the passengers used to sit and they'd go and do crop dusting. Right. The big 450 horsepower, nine-cylinder radial engines, 18 litres nearly. Vic, what's, Vic what's, they, that, what's that plane in North by Northwest in the famous scene where Cary Grant's running away from it? Yeah, that's, that's a big engine still. Like, like yeah. that? Right, okay. Like that. And basically, so the airplanes I fly, they had one lease of life training wartime pilots. They then got scrapped and left on the, on the scrap heap. They then got rescued by the crop dusting boys, and they then earned their living cross, uh, doing crop spraying um, until then, particularly in America, uh, people didn't then thought it was bad that the Mexicans were being sprayed with dodgy chemical. So they then basically did most of the spraying with big helicopters. It was much more accurate. So then they became scrap again. Okay, And then they were bought by people like me and rebuilt again, a bit like Trigger in his, in his broom. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with the big engine and became air show airplanes. And they'd never stopped from the day they were made wow. earning a living. Wow. Which I think is fantastic. And our airplanes, I mean, a lot of people have Stearmans for fun. And why wouldn't you if you can afford it? But 
the airplanes I fly just earning their living. They never stopped earning their living. I was with a pal the other day at, at, at an airfield near Manchester, and, and he's got a... Is it a yak? Yeah, what is that, Barton? Uh... It might, it, it might be. <laughs> well, it's called City Airport now, Vic, if you're, uh, if you're coming into there. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a chi- Is it Chinese? I thought I saw, like, Chinese insignia on it. Or is it, or is it Soviet? A, a, yak, a Yakolov is basically... Ah, Yakolov. It's, that's given the game away a bit. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Russian airplane. Yeah, I thought it might be. <laughs> but the same airplane was made also under licence by the Chinese. Ah, right. And okay. then they were called something like a Nongchang or something like that. But, yeah, there's a lot of Russian, a lot of those Russian aircrafts around now in the West since since the wall came down. Do you mind if I, drag, uh, if I drag you back to being a Ferrari dealer in the dark days? Is that OK? Yeah, sure. Go One of my favourite cars that's come, ever come out of Maranello, and it's, and it's always, when I mention it, people just sort of, the shoulders go down because... I have friends who are probably like you, considerably wealthier than I am, and they have lovely cars. Some of them are Ferraris, and then they'll say, "Oh, what's the what's your favourite Ferrari, Steve?" And I've been to the factory a few times, and I've had the treatment from the, the lovely treatment from the people there. Uh, there's no hospitality like Italian hospitality. There's also no cold shoulder like an Italian cold shoulder. But let's let's not dwell on that. And um, and when I say the 308 GT4, people just look at their shoes or, or leave the room. I just like them. I know they're, oh, you know I know they're hugely unloved by the, yeah. by the communist well, entity. That, that was a Bertone body car. Yeah. Very pretty car, actually. And you see, they were unloved. But if you wanted two little seats in the back, it was perfect. But, you know, with Ferrari, it's always, and it even more so now, it's, you know, Unless you've got a co- ex competition car, you know you've got the second best, second rate car. Mm. It's got to be ex competition, ex competition. It makes me laugh actually. If you go back a bit in time, you know the twenty four hour race at Le Mans. Anyone could enter that race in the early days. Okay, you could turn up, put an entry in. I'm talking about pre war, particularly pre war and early after the war. And people say, oh, this car's worth a lot. You know, it did, it did Le Mans. It did Le Mans. What they don't tell you is, yeah, it did do Le Mans, but it was just a private guy's car. And it only, it only managed to finish two laps because it broke down. But suddenly they think it's worth more money because it's competition history. In my view, it should be worth less money because it was a bloody failure. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you, you, can, you can do that, can't you? You can... Um, you can leave out it's not a lie you're not lying you're just withholding some of the pertinent information that may reveal um that the car is actually less desirable and glamorous than it than it may than it may appear to be yeah yeah but i agree that little 308 gt4 was a very pretty little car um i've driven those quite a bit and made much nicer because they're that coach builder was a particularly good coach builder, but you're right; they're undervalued. They're probably not now. I mean, no, no, nothing. Not, I, nothing's not undervalued now. I nearly no. bought. I nearly bought one about twelve years ago, and it had been restored by the students of a technical college. It had been bequeathed to them, I think. Okay. And they made the mistake of showing me all the photographs that they'd taken of the build, and there's nothing more. There's nothing more off-putting, I think than some people getting really enthusiastic about a set of photographs 
that was basically, and I say this in a, in a non-judgmental way, a lot of scruffy herberts <laughs> stood yeah. around, stood around this, this, this bits of this Ferrari. You just think, I'm really glad that you lot got the opportunity to do this, but I think I'm going to pass on this particular car. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but they were yeah. so, they were, oh yeah, they, they, they were all there and they were, oh yeah, do you remember when we did this? And then we, we didn't know how to do that and we had to get somebody else, oh yeah, and we did it all wrong and we broke that windscreen and we couldn't find another one and I was like, oh God. <laughs> I, I sort of, I sort of sloped off. I sort of sloped off, you know, that I think they turned around and, where's he gone? Oh, does he not want to buy it? No, I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't so. forget, if you go back in time, okay, Enzo Ferrari, the old man, he was only interested in winning races. Yeah. And he sold cars to wealthy people, kings and counts and whatever, all across the world. He sold road cars to them to help support his motor racing. But he, his love was just competition. So that's very much something that stayed with Ferrari up till modern times. And now, you know, having a Ferrari is like having a Gucci bag or a Yves Saint Laurent this or, you know, it's all it's all image now. And people want to have that because then you're in brackets successful and you've got the image, you know. Well, which was the best? Which was the best car that passed through your hands in those days, Vic? I think I know what you're going to say, because I have had a look at your book. I can tell you what was the most, it's now classified as the most expensive car, but the best Ferrari that passed through my hands was a 250 Works competition short wheelbase Berlinetta, the car that came out before the GTO. It was a more roadable car. It was also a racing car, and I just loved the line of it so much. Where the GTO Ferrari, which is now the mega Ferrari that every mega collector in the world wants, that's worth God knows what, ridiculous, millions and millions and tens of millions, was a was an out-and-out racing car and a lovely-looking car. But to me, didn't quite have the charisma of the earlier short-wheelbase car. There was a 250 in the Rotunda at the RAC Club a few years ago. Yeah. It was the Ennis Island car, the pale, oh, the, the pale, pale green. Pale green. Yeah, pale green. And UDT uh, colours. Yeah, and and I um, I uh, took the missus. I'm, I'm trying to remember what we were there for. We were there for some sort of shindig. I think it might have been a celebration of the life and career of an excellent gentleman who left us recently after grand innings, Mr. Murray Walker, who was oh, an absolute yeah. diamond of a man, yeah. in my opinion. And we were there, well, he was. And uh, no, obviously when he passed, there was an outpouring of, of love for the guy because he was just such a, as, you, as you've mentioned, so passionate and so enthusiastic and, yeah. a, re- and a real, uh, you know, if you got him on his own, which I did a couple of times, a motorcycle man at heart, really. Like, like I suppose we all are, but um, the, it was there in the rotunda, and, and my partner Karen took a picture of it, and she sent it to her dad in Vancouver. He's a Scotsman, and she said, "Oh yeah, this is a special car because it's the only. Is it the only car in that colour, in that livery? That that one? I think it might U, be. Yeah, UDT. It, yes, it was the only. It was the only Ferrari, I believe, in that colour. And so we got talking. Um, so we're, I'm at this dinner and we're talking away and she said she got a message back from her dad 
and we've been together for 13, 14 years now. And uh, I keep finding out different things about her. <laughs> she, she, her father was in the mining business. He worked for he worked in Africa and he worked all over the world for Rio Tinto and people like that. And uh, and she got a message back. She said, "Oh yeah, my dad says we used to live next door to Rob Walker in Stratford and Avon, and he used to he was he was always he always had he was always coming home in all sorts of interesting cars, and he used to let me feed his donkeys. He used to give me carrots to feed to his donkeys. And I'm like, there you go. I'm like." Hold on a second. You you use Rob Walker, like she said. Yeah, I said the Rob Walker. You used to live next door to him in Stratford and everything. Yeah, my dad says we used to live next door to him. He knew him quite well and all this sort of stuff. You just think, really? Wow, amazing! Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and nobody's nobody's thought to mention this up until now. You know, no, no. But, great. Yeah. It's an great. amazing. But isn't it? Isn't it great how people's enthusiasm for cars, bikes, planes? machines um i i think there's a point where you realize that the machines themselves are almost secondary to the other thing that's going on which is that these people have come together to race this car to 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 build this motorcycle to put on you know to to do all the things that those planes that you've talked about have done in their lives yeah. it just brings people together and and when you look back on it, that's what you remember, isn't it? You remember the, the anecdotes, the nights out, the friendships that were forged. The vehicles themselves, I don't know, I think this you might not, but the vehicle, the, the machines, let's call them, are almost secondary. Yeah, I, I hear what you say. I agree. Uh, it's being with the people. And, you know, on the London to Brighton run, which I do every year on the bikes, what do I look forward to most? Well, I look forward to when I've arrived, hopefully, at Brighton in one piece. <laughs> and I look forward to them walking down with their mates and buying fish and chips and eating it on the seafront. Oh, absolutely. To me, that's my, that's like a real, that's like, you know, Christmas lunch. That's a real special thing for me. I so look forward to it. I can't tell you. How much of the stuff that you've been involved with down the year, are you an accumulator or are you somebody no, who moves from one thing to another? No, I've never had enough money to be an accumulator, so I've always been a user. I don't want to have anything I can't jump in and use. And if something comes along that, that I fancy more, I have to sell something to get something else. I mean, I was lucky, you know, years ago when I, when I worked for a small engineering business. You know, everyone, and my mother actually, before she died, God bless her, she said, look, you must you must go start taking out a pension. You've got to have a pension, you know. Uh, what are you going to do when you're older and you stop working? Well, people would then try and sell you pensions all your life. And I managed to persuade my wife, God bless her, who supported me the whole of my life. Um, look, we're not going to have a pension, but instead of a pension, why don't I buy an old motorbike? And then I can have fun using it. And then when we need the money, we'll flog it. And that's what I did. And by chance, all this old crap that I ended up buying <laughs> pretty cheaply then suddenly becomes quite a lot of, worth quite a lot of money. You know, and things like Vincent, Vincent Black Shadows and Repeats that you could pick up for three or four grand, they're suddenly worth 40 or 50 grand. But it's not being clever, it's just because that's what's happened. And you've had fun mucking about with that stuff. You know, I took one of my I took one of my um, Vincent Rapides over to, believe it or not, the club 
sent a load of bikes over years and years ago, probably 20 years ago, to uh, New Zealand. And we all went over there. And I rode around North Ireland and South Ireland with my wife. And I had to pay my share of the container. And it was less money than having to rent a car for three weeks. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Clay. I've said this to other people. I said... In fact, a mate of mine's just started doing this, and I don't know if it's—I don't think it's because he knows me, but but he's kind of started getting rid of cars and buying motorbikes because he's realised that he's got quite a lot of storage for somebody who lives in a regular house, but he's got—he's realised you can fit about half a dozen motorcycles into the same space that you can a car. Yeah. So he started, yeah. he started collecting bikes, he started getting rid of cars and accumulating motorcycles. I don't want a bike that I can't jump on and go and ride. Mm. But that's just me. I like stuff I can use. And, you know, when I'm too old to fly and I, the medical man pulls my ticket because I'm about to keel over, <laughs> which happens to everyone at some stage or other. Is um, there a point at which you have to stop, Vic, when you, you're doing the, uh, the flying? It's, the... it's down to medical. It's right, so every medical. year they find out whether you can see and whether you can... Every six months. Yeah. Every six months, right, okay. Yeah, yeah, right. And quite quite strict, as it should be, as indeed it should be. Um, but basically then when I, when I, you know, I'll probably end up dying in bed, but then if I get my ticket pulled, oh, I can still, I can still ride my bike. Hey, and as I long did, as, I, as, I, did, long as I can kick the thing over and start it, that's great. I did, a, I, did a, I did a piece with the Britain's oldest motorcyclist. who was a chap called Len Vailonslow. Um, he had a business, they'd had a family business there for a long time, right in the centre of Birmingham. And uh, he was still riding at 103. He was, ri- he was riding, yeah, but... <laughs> so we, we, we filmed an interview with him in the workshop. It's, it, the funny thing was his sons had taken over the business, but of course his sons were in the 70s. You know, it was yeah. like, this yeah. is his sons. <laughs> and so we filmed in this workshop, which was, when you went into this, it was a parade of shops in Birmingham at one time. It goes back to what you and I were talking about earlier, where... Um, the British motorcycle industry was dominated the world motorcycle trade. And of course, the vast majority of British men would have owned a motorcycle at some time and would have had a motorcycle license and would more readily have had, especially working people, a motorbike and sidecar than they would a car. Even in my lifetime, that was the norm. But um, so there was this parade of shops that were all given over to Vale Onslow motorcycles, but then only a tiny part of it was actually being occupied and used because, you know, if you're in the BSA parts um, sales, then come come the 2000s, there wasn't that much demand. It was no longer BSA time, as it famously said. You'd go in and there'd be a clock on the wall. It's BSA time. Like this, you think, it's not BSA time anymore. It's It's... It's not. And um, so we got on the bike. He got on his uh, Suzuki GP100. His son started it up for him. And it was a little bit alarming to see them having to sort of manhandle him onto it. And I thought, I've got a feeling this isn't going to be too great. And we we rode up off at the road, as as instructed the two of us, because it was like, and Steve and and, and Len went for a ride together. And off we went up the road. And this is the centre of Birmingham, Mark. So we set off up the road. Len just sailed straight through the red light, just straight through uh, it. Didn't touch yeah. the brakes, didn't look to like straight through it with cars swerving to avoid him. And I thought, this is going to be a long day. 
yeah. But but yeah. maybe maybe not for Len. But we we managed to keep the riding to an an absolute minimum. But uh, you know, it's uh, there's hope for all of us. What's the best bike you've ever owned, Vic? What's what's the bike that you just thought this was the greatest motorcycle that's ever been made? Because you must have ridden most of them. I've got I've I've got I've still got the motorcycle that I think is the greatest motorcycle that was ever made in period. And that was that is my 1913 Flying Merkel. Wow. 1,000cc, one gear, an eclipse slipping clutch. We'll do 85 mile an hour on the road. Good Lord. And I bought the bike. I was really lucky 20-odd years ago from, you will know this person, a man called Bud Eakins. Oh, yes, of course. friendly with wow. Bud. It took me three or four years visiting him in California before he'd let me have the bike. And Bud did the jump for Steve McQueen in The Great Escape. Yeah. And also drew, uh, drove the other car in, in Bullet and the race on the road, you know, Bullet. Um, but Bud, yeah, I got that off Bud, and that is the last mechanical thing that I'll keep. That's, I love that thing more than anything else I've got mechanically. Would that bike have been built for board track racing, or was it... <laughs> No, no, it was a road bike. It was sold in 1913 in New Mexico to a very wealthy guy. He used it on the road. Bear in mind, in 1913 in America, you know, all the roads were straight. They're all gravel roads. Um, uh, and he didn't need gears. You know, you whacked it into top gear. You would jack the lad. I mean, you were on the fastest thing on the planet. Can you imagine how... What? So, obviously, you know, Henry Ford's... Uh, revolutionary tin lizzie was dominating yeah. the the roads of america at that time and they were churning what i've just been reading a big book about him you might you might have guessed um they were churning one out every six minutes by then and yeah. so you know the four-wheeled revolution happened half a century before it happened in the uk and the states in in the oh, yeah. ordinary oh, yeah. ordinary people could afford a car and um what would the top speed of a Model T be? About 40, 45, 47 miles an yeah, hour or something like that? Yeah, I think so. I'm not into those. But Can yeah, you I'm imagine not... what it was like when you were passed by a motorcycle doing in, in excess of 80 miles an hour? It must have been amazing. And and then, you know, basically, of course, what came big time, and they're superheroes, really, was all the board track racing that uh, used to take place on the special oval tracks. We, and, you know, people fell off and they got killed by a splinter you know they were they were madmen really those oval track racers i thought i thought Vic, that when they said board track i thought it was like when they say like white rhino and it and it's a corruption of wide because it's got a wider nose i didn't believe for a long time that the tracks were actually made out of wooden boards until until i saw a photograph of this giant stadia that was constructed entirely from wood yes. on yes. a vast scale. And, and the first thing that struck me, and I, I, you know, I wonder if it was the same thing to you, I just thought, wow, that must have been insanely dangerous. It was. I think it was probably the most dangerous thing you could do. And, and basically, of course, the people that built the tracks, some of the towns and, and the wealthy people in the towns... They're making huge amounts of money, huge crowds turning up watching these things. And then, you know, you had Indian, you had Harley, you had Excelsior. It goes on and on. You had Cyclone, you had Thor, you had Merkel. 
all these guys trying to win um, on racing versions of their road bikes. And um, it was fantastic motorcycling day. Running yeah. on methanol, no, no brakes of any kind. You no brake, no brakes None. at all, no, no exhaust, running on, on dope. Uh, yeah. And, and for protection, one of those leather American football helmets that they used to wear and a sturdy sweater with perhaps that's, with perhaps that's right a nice sturdy sweater <laughs> with perhaps and the mark with perhaps the name of the mark with perhaps Harley Davidson or or as you say all those great names Thor Flying Merkel Excelsior there were so many motorcycle manufacturers in the US in the states at the start of the motorcycle's life and it was really quickly boiled down to two wasn't it to Indian and Harley I suppose by the the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. There wasn't much call for superbikes after 1929. Yeah, I suppose but I that think what happened as well was the military contracts, right? So bikes needing needing bikes in the first world in the first world war. I think the military contracts went to Indian. You know, Indian were a lot bigger than Harley in the mm. early days. I think they went to Indian and Harley and all the minor manufacturers like your car, Mister Chevron guy. They didn't get a sniff in, mm. and I think that's what happened. So it was it, they, they ended up. You ended up with those two major names, Harley Davidson and Indian. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it was mad to me. It was magical times. But that motorbike I've got, that 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 um, flying Merkel, when the guy finished using it on the road after, and I've got all the original tax discs, tags actually. He then put it, get ready for this, he had an emerald mine, okay? <laughs> and he put the bike in the emerald mine, took the back wheel off, and it ticked over and ran the lights in his emerald mine. Good Lord. And that's where it was found, with the back wheel off. And they kicked a shed in, and they then found the back wheel. I know a chap who built, uh, restored a, a Bruff Superior, and the engine was found having been repurposed to operate the elevator in a carpet factory. <laughs> and I thought that was the most unusual use of an engine from an exotic high-end yeah. high motorcycle. But now that you've told me about the Emerald Mine power source, <laughs> I, th I think, I think that's, that's a new one. When did, you, when did somebody persuade you that this all of this needed to be put down in a box so that people like oh, no, me that's, people that's, like me who love this sort of thing will be able to no, no, read about your incredible the whole book was never attempt never wanting to write anything about me so about 15 years ago i've got lots of i've got lots of grandchildren and none of them ever met my mum or my dad and knew anything about my family history so i was on holiday once about 12 15 years ago and i thought you know what i'm going to write a little five page document book have it printed at local printers and give one to each of the grandchildren. They know a bit about their, their great-granddad and their great-grandmum and whatever, whatever. So I started doing that. Then I lost my notes and I can't read my writing. And uh, Then lockdown came and I started, I taught myself to two-finger type and I started typing it, okay, on my computer. And I, I didn't, it just started with the day I was born and I, I had no, I'm not a planned, you know, I didn't have planned chapters or anything. And it just, it just was all in my head and it was all coming out and flowing out. And I suppose that book that I've written 
what I'm most proud of is the fact that I wrote 85,000 words myself, typing with two fingers during <laughs> lockdown. And, and basically, you know, the rest of it just sort of happened. And it's, it's really just a snippet of my life. It's some, I've tried to make it fun, and I've, I've put in things that I think people will be interested and find fun to read. It never came about for any reason other than to give something to the grandchildren. Well, I I think that you like you're not the only guest uh, like this that I've had, but I haven't had too many. I think people looking at it will think this isn't one person. It can't be. There's too much stuff. There's too much stuff going on. There's too many cars. There's too many planes. There's too many bikes. This must be two or three different people. They think no, it's just one guy. How did he fit it all in? <laughs> Can I tell you how I fitted it in? Please do. I've never had a job. Right. So I've had to earn my living however I could. And and it meant I never had anyone from the from the day well my dad died when I was about fourteen, but he wasn't you know, we weren't it wasn't a together family. My mum and dad weren't living together. But my dad was a wealthy guy and was providing, you know, lots of goodies and we had a very uh, spoiled childhood. I had a very spoiled childhood to the time he died. Then, then everything pretty well stopped. But basically, because I've never had anyone telling me what to do, and I've always been stri- quite strong-natured, I've just done what I've wanted to do. And I've then thought, God, I've got to make this pay. I've got kids now. I've got to. I've got to be able to send them to school. I've got to be able to do this. So, uh, and that's what drove me to really, if you like become a pretty successful air show pilot and organization with mega sponsors you know i've had fantastic sponsors like capris and uh, brightling and lots of wonderful names and um what drove me to get those sponsors was the fact i had to earn money yeah because otherwise you've got to go and do that thing horror of horrors a real job Ooh, yeah, you don't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> no, exactly. And you know, my mum telling you be sensible and buy stocks and shares and whatever your brother's doing. Well, no, I don't want to do that. People that know me or have known me for any length of time at some point will will say, um, so you know, you'll be talking and they'll say, so did you go straight into this when you left school? I say, no, no, I was training to be an accountant, and what what I've had to learn to do is to not for them not to be taking a sip or a bite or because it, there's, inv- there's inevitably a coughing fit that, that, that comes about because I am probably the least likely person that you would imagine to have ever been taken on by quite a prestigious Manchester-based accountancy practice with very swanky offices with a very posh Manchester address. And at some point, somebody thought that I may, might make a high-flying accountant. And it just, like I say, for people that have known me for 10, 20, 30 years, it's so ridiculous that, that as I say, if they're taking a bite of something or a drink of something, we're almost having to, having to do a Heimlich manoeuvre to, to, to sort of stop them from choking to death. So, yeah, but it's this, thing, it's this thing, Steve, which I said at the very beginning, where basically I think everyone gets, um, crossroads in their life and they go straight down or turn left and right it's very often normally easy and probably normally the best to just carry on doing what you're doing and whatever but everyone I think has three or four of those choices during your life 
And I think those those decisions end up telling you what how, how your life's going to be. And, you know, it's Greek philosophy, and I'm not into Greek philosophy because, you know, I'm, I'm not educated, not well-educated. But they apparently say one thing when you die, and they say they don't care if you've made money, they don't care really what you've done. They say, did this person live a life with passion? And if you did live a life with passion, they say, well, you lived a good life. And if you didn't live it, and they'd say, say, well, no, he didn't really live a life of passion. He just worked at the whatever, and he wasn't that passionate about it. They said, well, so be it. He lived his life, and he's, he's now gone, and that's the end of it. <laughs> so it was all about living a life of passion. And I'm a great believer in living a life with passion. I try and put that into my children and grandchildren. And, you know, to n- not to worry about what's expected to do, because you're not here long, are you, Steve? That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.